Grace and peace, Lighthouse Bible Church. I bring you greetings from the Lawson family and from the entire congregation at Baltimore Bible Church. Uh, I'm sorry that I'm not able to be there uh, with you in person to greet you, but as you know, uh, these are strange times that we find ourselves in these days, and I trust that you are praying for your leadership and uh, for the church as a whole, as uh, these are difficult waters uh, to navigate. I also want to personally thank uh, Pastor Mark Chen and uh, say hello to uh, to you and to your wife, Julie, and your sweet family. Uh, Pastor Mark has been a close personal friend from uh, my earliest days at uh, the Master Seminary, and I'm uh, grateful for you and for uh, your ministry and in, uh, in the times of prayer and uh, just fellowship and friendship that we've had uh, over the years. I also want to thank uh, the elders of uh, Lighthouse Bible Church and uh, Lighthouse. I hope that you know that you have uh, faithful and godly leaders there. And um, I've been personally convicted and challenged uh, just by the shepherding that takes place at uh, Lighthouse Bible. So, uh, brothers, you've been an example uh, to me in your ministering. And uh, lastly, I want to send a shout out to Pastor Ted and the rest of Team Baltimore that I got to spend some extended time with here a couple years ago. Uh, we love you guys. And any time that you find yourself on the East Coast, uh, we hope that you know that you have family uh, here in Baltimore. You have a place that you can uh, call home. So I'm uh, eager to share, share the word of uh, God with you uh, this morning, and I've been given an assignment by Pastor Mark uh, to preach about a topic uh, that we've all been forced to deal with, uh, whether we were ready for it or not. I found it's uh, on our screens, our TV screens, it's in the social media, whatever method of communication that you might be using. Uh, so when I asked Pastor Mark, is there anything that you'd like me to speak about, uh, he immediately asked me if I would give a biblical perspective uh, to all that's been going on in relationship to the racial division that we find in America and the kinds of responses uh, that we've seen to it. And while we're not obligated to speak about every social or cultural issue, uh, it is important for us to address the issues that affect us as a church. And uh, like it or not, uh, this is something that has found its way to the doorsteps of the church, and we want to make sure that we're thinking biblically uh, through these issues. And I want to admit to you up front that I'm not going to be able to say everything that I want to say uh, this morning uh, or answer every question that you might want me to answer. Uh, there's a lot that we won't be able to cover in a single message. Uh, so I am grateful that the Lord has given you faithful and godly uh, leadership there that you can bring specific questions to. I also want to ask for grace up front because this is an emotionally charged issue. And I have no doubt in my mind that there are people uh, who will walk away believing that I should have given more emphasis to one side or to another or to no side at all. Uh, so if I don't speak as long or as loud or as short or as silently as you think that I should, uh, just know that it's my desire to be faithful to what the scriptures have to say. And I also want to let you know up front that my primary burden is for the church of Jesus Christ, because honestly, we don't expect the world to get this one right. Do we? We live in a fallen world that's filled with ignorance, arrogance, harshness, impatience, intolerance, hatred, disunity, hostility. And that's what we would expect to find in the world that we live in. But we shouldn't settle for that kind of response in the church of Jesus Christ. It's unworthy of our calling as saints. Listen to these words in Ephesians chapter 4. Starting at verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, 
being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But sadly, in the midst of these discussions on race and justice, I don't believe that there's been enough of an effort made towards humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, unity, and peace. And in many ways, we've simply just imitated the world. So today I'm I'm imploring us as believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And when Paul says, with which you've been called, when he speaks about the calling, he's speaking about the effectual call of salvation. So, So what he means is live like you're a believer. Walk like you're saved. Talk like you're saved. Post like you're saved. Blog like you're saved. Act like you're saved. Respond like you're saved. We should be speaking in love. And not only are we to speak in love, we're to speak the truth in love. And we're not left to drown in a sea of of uncertainty regarding the issues that face us. Scripture is clear. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. It's the only necessary word that we need to have during times like this. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And when we turn to the world's means and the world's methods and the world's vocabulary to deal with the issues that we're, we face, it's, it's like we're, we're putting on Saul's armor to fight God's battles or, or picking up Peter's sword to defend Christ's cause. What we need to do is to, to pick up the smooth stones of, of scripture to put in our slang or to change the metaphor. We need to pick up the sword of the spirit, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So, so what I want to do this morning is to, to, to frame this conversation out with some biblical terminology and truth, and then uh, fill that framework in with a, a biblical humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, unity, and, and peace. But before we, we frame out this discussion and uh, try to fill it in. Let's go ahead to the Lord and, uh, and ask him to, to fill us and to give us his uh, spirit and his wisdom. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you uh, this morning, and uh, Father, we are grateful for uh, every opportunity that we have to look into your word. Now, Father, we thank you that your word has all that we need for life and godliness, and uh, we do pray that you would uh, allow your word to speak clearly to the issues that face us, and Father, that we would be content with the answers that you give in Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. I want to give a, a little illustration. It might be a little lengthy, but I, I thought it would be helpful uh, for us as we start to think about these things. She was excited and anxious as she checked her ticket once again to make sure she was in the right seat. It would be her second time on a plane, but it would be her first time traveling away from family. She could still hear the words of her father. He was a practical man, and he made his best attempts to convince her not to go away. There were good-paying jobs in New York City. If she was going to go away for college, why not go to a college that would prepare her to take advantage of the economic opportunities all around her? What kind of career could she really expect to have with a Bible college degree anyway? She settled into her seat and prepared herself for the long seven-hour flight. It was too late to change her mind. This was a decision she made more than two years before she booked her flight. At the age of 17... One year before she dedicated her life to Jesus, she began hearing stories from missionaries who visited her church on furlough. 
Her testimonies of the Lord's work in distant lands lit a fire in her spirit for lost souls. She wanted to be a missionary in Africa, and the fire for ministry burned bright. She would need a bright fire where she was heading. Her family tried to warn her that winters could be cold in Portland, Oregon, where she was accepted into a small Bible college. The pastor of her home church was once the president of the college she applied to. No doubt his recommendation carried some weight in the admissions office. Her pastor was also sending his daughter to the same college that year, and she and his daughter were best friends. They didn't share the same complexion, but that never made a difference to them. They were like family. As the plane finally made its descent into the airport, her heart quickened, its pace and with anticipation. I can't believe I'm finally here. What will Oregon be like? What will my school be like? I can't wait to start my classes and reconnect with my best friend. The plane made a safe landing, and she said a quick prayer of thanksgiving. She grabbed her purse and her Bible after waiting for her turn. She exited the plane, taking her first steps on her own, own Oregon Trail. After making her way through the airport and picking up her one piece of luggage, she was greeted by fellow students and one of the teachers at the college. It was a cordial greeting, but she noticed that the welcome was less than enthusiastic. Maybe it was just their personality. After she arrived on campus and settled into her room, she prepared herself to attend the first orientation meeting in her dorm. She wasn't prepared to hear what was really bothering her welcoming committee. She was informed that a number of her would-be fellow students refused to return to school that year. Why? Because they learned that she, a black student, was being accepted to their Christian college. She was confused, she was crushed, and now she was concerned about what kind of school she had signed up for. How could anyone be taught to love people in a nation they had not seen when they did not love the people in the nation they had seen? She called her mother in tears. Mama, what did I get myself into? She never saw her best friend that year. Maybe her friend was there, but she never initiated any contact with her. There were other students who were told to avoid her completely. One student from Tennessee was warned by his father, when you see a black person on the street, cross over to the other side. Don't walk on the same side of the street. His father was a county sheriff. There were other students who admitted that they planned to leave, but stayed simply out of curiosity, as if she were some kind of exhibit. And then there were a few students who befriended her and accepted her as an equal. One student from Iowa even invited her to be one of her bridesmaids. She was so excited to have a real friend. During the school break, she went home to New York to search for just the right dress. Then she received the phone call. I'm so sorry. You can't be in my wedding. My mother told me that after you leave, we will still have to live here. They didn't want to explain why a black girl was part of their daughter's bridal party. It was clear this wasn't the place for her. She left the school in 1968 after two painful years and returned to New York with a broken heart, shattered dreams, and no diploma to show for it. She abandoned her hopes of making it to the mission field and later settled down in Albany, New York, where she married in 1972 and had two children. Her firstborn son would later be a graduate from Bible college and seminary and became a pastor of a church plant in Baltimore, Maryland, called Baltimore Bible Church. The woman in the story is my mother. And I share that story, not just because it's personal. I mean, of course it is personal. But I also wanted to, to share that story because it highlights that racism isn't just a problem out there that has to be contended with in the world. We, we could have talked about the, the transatlantic slave trade or Native American Trail of Tears or Nazi Germany 
or the Japanese internment camps or Chinese lynchings or any number of race-based atrocities. But this is not just a problem out there that needs to be contended with in the world. This has been and will be an issue that we have to contend with as a church as well. And we're not just talking about ancient history here. Racism is real. And racism is present. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, racism is defined as prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against a person or people on the basis of their membership in a particular racial or ethnic group, typically one that is minority or marginalized. There are a number of people in the church who would argue, you know, we really don't have a problem with with racism, do we? Not today. They would say, you know, I don't see color. I don't know anybody else who sees in color. You know, what's the problem? You know, I thought we took care of those issues with the Civil Rights Act in 1964 or voting rights in 1965, Equal Housing Act in 1968, and certainly by the presidential election of uh, 2008. But there are brothers and sisters all around you who have a different story to tell. I remember personally the first time I heard the N-word used against me was in a Christian school. And my own children, sadly, have experienced their own forms of discrimination in churches we attended. We're not all swaying back and forth at the campfire, roasting marshmallows, singing kumbaya, kumbaya. I mean, that's that's just not the case. Racism is real. And even though the, the categories created by race have no basis in science or the scriptures, because what we find is that neither biology nor the Bible recognizes the distinctions based on race. There's only one human race. There's many ethnicities, but only one human race. So racism is really foolish. Even though it, it, it has no basis in science or scriptures, it's still real. And when I say that racism is, is foolish, I'm not disregarding the fact that there are differences between nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. I'm not denying that there are, are many beautiful shades of, of, of humanity, expressions of humanity. We used to sing the song, you know, Jesus loves the, the little children, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. We recognize that the God paints humanity in all kinds of shades with his divine palette. But when we say that, that there's one human race, we're acknowledging what Scripture itself clearly teaches. That out of all the 7.5 billion people on the planet, we can all trace our roots back to two people at the head of the line, Adam and Eve. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. We all share a common ancestry. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20 calls Eve, the name of Adam's wife, Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And actually, when we look at science, National Geographic published an article in 2018 titled, There's No Scientific Basis for Race, It's a Made-Up Label, uh, for which I'm thankful to uh, Daryl Harrison, who uh, uh, alerted me to this. And in this article, it describes the influence of prominent scientist and doctor, a prominent scientist and doctor named Samuel Morton, who collected skulls. Morton believed that people could be divided into five races and that these represented separate acts of creation. The races had distinct characters, uh, characteristics, and which corresponded to their place in a divinely determined hierarchy. And uh, today, Morton is known as the father of scientific racism. 
Morton's craniometry, which is the study of skulls, showed that he uh, claimed, uh, and through the study, he claimed that, that whites or Caucasians were the most intelligent of the races. East Asians were one step down. Next came Southeast Asians, followed by Native Americans, and blacks or Ethiopians were at the bottom. And in the decades before uh, the Civil War, Morton's ideas were quickly taken up by the defenders of slavery. Uh, so many of the, the horrors of the past few centuries can really be traced back to the idea that one race is inferior to another. And uh, the article goes on to say that researchers who have since looked at people at the genetic level now say that the whole category of race is misconceived. Indeed, when scientists set out to assemble the first complete human genome, which was a composite of several individuals, they deliberately gathered samples from people who self-identified as members of different races. In June of 2000, when the results were announced at a White House ceremony, Craig Venter, a pioneer of DNA sequencing, observed, the concept of race has no genetic or scientific basis. We're, we're all part of the same human race. And if, uh, you know, those, uh, uh, those DNA testings, you know, go far enough, you know, all the ancestry.coms or whatever else, Eventually, they're going to find out that we all come back to two parents, Adam and Eve. Multiple races do not exist. That's why I say that it's foolish that racism exists. But racism is not only foolish. Racism is also sinful. Discrimination against people based purely on superficial differences is sinful. Skin color, hair texture, facial features. Malachi 2 calls it treacherous. Malachi 2, verse 10, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, treacherously, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? We're, we're all children of God by creation. And any attack against a fellow human being is an attack against one of your own. And it's been that way from the beginning. When Cain killed his brother Abel, God asked the penetrating question, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. But the truth is, is that anytime, anytime we unlawfully kill a fellow human being, it's always fratricide. It's always the killing of a brother. Maybe not directly related, but every person in humanity is related to you. Racism is real. Racism is foolish. Racism is sinful. And I, I would also add that racism is blasphemous. Blasphemous. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And that image of God and man was not lost after the fall. The image of God has been severely marred by the fall, but it has not been erased by the fall. That's why the, the principle of the, the law of retalia, uh, retaliation, uh, known as lex talionis, uh, was established in Scripture. The, the justice of God demanded that if anyone had the audacity to take a human life, that person at the same time forfeited his own life. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And why? For in the image of God he made man. Even though the marred image of God and fallen humanity is so valuable that taking that broken image and destroying it is worthy of death. And I hear a lot about, you know, this life matters or that life matters. 
But why does human life matter? Why does human life matter? It matters because we are made in the image of God. That's what makes us different than the animals. You know, I saw this uh, bumper sticker that said, uh, end speciesism. It was actually at a McDonald's in front of me, you know, in the drive-thru line in the McDonald's in front of me. End speciesism, but they're going to McDonald's. What, what makes man different from animals? We've been made in the image of God. And listen to this. How you treat a fellow human being reflects what you think about his creator. Reflects what you think about God himself. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31 says, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. That's why I say it's blasphemous. Our our attack against those who are made in the image of God is an attack against God. Proverbs 17, verse 5 says, He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. Racism is blasphemous. But not only is racism blasphemous, racism is also internal. Internal, it's a matter of the heart. In Matthew 15, and starting in verse 19, it says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that defile me. The evil thoughts that we think about others come from the heart. Murders take place first in the heart before they ever reach the knees or the hands. Whether that murderer wears a flag or wears a badge, at heart is where the murder begins. Murder begins in the heart, which should really help us avoid a few errors in relationship to racism. And the first error that people make is that racism doesn't exist. You know, just because there's there's not a black letter law on the books that protects racism or uh, explicit expressions of racism uh, may not be seen, it doesn't mean that racism still does not exist because racism is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. So racism is real and it can exist even when it's not visible. I mean, it's not imaginary. It's not just all in our heads that we say that racism exists. To imagine that racism isn't a part of American society because there's laws that prevent overt acts of racism is is just naive to say that it doesn't exist. So that's one error to say that racism doesn't exist or it only exists in small pockets. There's another error because on the other side, there are people who believe that Racism is everything. It's all that exists. You can't say that racism doesn't exist, but we can't say that racism is all that exists. And look at everything through the lens of our past experience. You know, to say it's because I'm black or it's because I'm Asian or it's because I'm, you know, whatever. People are keeping me down. You know, we, we, can't, we can't say that. And here's where we have to think biblically and honestly. I don't, I don't know... What you're thinking, okay? This is what the Bible lets us know. I don't know what you're thinking until you reveal that to me. I might think I know what you're thinking. I might have a good idea about what you're thinking. I might even be right about what you're thinking. But I can't say that I know what you're thinking for sure until you reveal that to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? We, we don't know what people are thinking. And honestly, I've been guilty of it before. You know, you know you've know, you been overlooked or treated in a certain way, and automatically you think, oh, it's because 
There's, there's racism. It's because they're racist. I know they're racist. People are, are racist, but we don't know for sure until they reveal that to us. So you might be right, but we're guarded from Scripture from coming to unjust conclusions. We don't know what's going on in a person's mind, and we're restricted from Scripture from judging motives. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. It's not our responsibility to assign motives to people's actions. We might be right, but then again, we might be wrong. And there's a narrative that's being presented to us that continues to generate an emotional response even before we've had a time to gather all the facts. <laughs> and we need to make sure that we're thinking biblically, that we don't jump to conclusions. I mean, we can judge an action and say that, no, that action is just wrong, just objectively what they did was wrong. But we can't jump to the reason why they did what they did. We're not allowed to judge motives. And third, if racism is a, a matter of the heart, this is the other thing that this guards us against if we understand that racism is a matter of the heart. We don't need anything external in order to be guilty of racism. What do I mean by that? There's, there's a common definition of racism that says that racism is prejudice plus power. There's an author, uh, Beverly Daniel Tatum, in her book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? She defines racism as a system of oppression based on race. But if racism, as Scripture lets us know, is really a matter of the heart, I don't need power or a system in order to be guilty of it. I, I can be greedy whether I have a little or whether I have a lot, right? And I can be racist whether I have power or whether I have a system or not. I don't need to have power in order to be guilty of evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness slanders in my heart. Red or yellow, black or white, all are also guilty in his sight. Because racism is a, is a sin of the heart. It's a judgment that I make in my heart. So I don't need power in order to be racist. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And, and brothers and sisters, we need to be we need to be careful that we don't excuse in ourselves what we condemn in others. So that's the, the first part of the, the biblical framework that you need to, to keep in mind. Racism is real, foolish, sinful, blasphemous. It's internal. But we also need to kind of fill out that second part of the, the biblical framework, and this relates to, to justice or injustice as we start to think about the, the issues that we're, we're facing, racism and injustice as well. And we've heard a lot about justice, haven't we? I mean, people are demanding justice. One of the popular slogans that we've heard during this time and similar times to these is, is no justice, no peace. And as believers, we're, we're no strangers to the concept of justice because when we talk about justice, we're talking about an attribute of God himself. God is himself the absolute standard of justice. Burkhoff in his systematic theology refers to God as being infinitely righteous in himself. But not only is God the absolute standard of justice and righteousness, God also acts consistently 
with his own righteousness, with his own justice. Berghoff goes on to say that he maintains over against every violation of his holiness and shows in every respect that he is the Holy One. God acts consistently with his own nature. Romans chapter 9, verse 14 says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. So when God judges, he always judges righteously. The heavenly court never makes an incorrect judgment. There's no errors in the heavenly proceedings. Psalm 89, verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And even though we as fallen creatures and are fallen creatures, even though we are fallen creatures, instinctively, we know that certain things are right and certain things are just wrong. Instinctively, we have this desire for for justice, and that's all part of being made in the image of God. God is the one who is absolutely righteous in every respect, and those that he has made, even though we've been marred by the fall as fallen creatures, we still have a sense for righteousness and justice. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And when you see an officer with his knee on the neck of a suspect for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, you don't have to be an expert and jurisprudence to say something's just not right here. Something inside of you know that this is wrong. I don't need to pass the bar or go to law school in order to know that. But why is injustice so wrong? Number one, injustice violates the character of God. Violates the character of of God. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice righteous and upright is he. Injustice violates the very nature of God himself. It's, it's an attack against who he is. It's a refusal to conform ourselves to who he is. It's to love what he hates, and it's to hate what he loves. And the Lord loves justice. Psalm 33 and verse 5 says he loves righteousness and justice. He, he hates injustice. Proverbs 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous... Both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. And any deviation from God's standard is the definition of what it means to be ungodly. If, if, if you say that you don't love justice, that you don't hate injustice, it's to say to God that I don't want to be like you. It's to be ungodly. Injustice violates the character of God. But not only does injustice violate the character of God, it also denies the word of God. God demands justice from those who have the responsibility to render justice. In Leviticus 19, the Lord spoke to the entire congregation of Israel. And he said in Leviticus 19, verse 15, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Justice is not just God's character, it's God's command. And there's a a particular pain for us when when officers, who are those who are sworn to, to serve and to protect, become those who abuse and become the threat themselves. And I want to quickly add here that the authority is ordained by God. Authority is ordained by God. Romans 13, verse 1 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, 
and those which exist are established by God. And then down in verse 4, it goes on to say that, that rulers are a minister of God to you for good. So, so, so we don't seek to, to overthrow government as Christians. We recognize that injustice is, is a denial of, of God's authority and uh, their explicit role given by Scripture if they, they, they commit acts of injustice. But, um, but authority is not the problem. Okay? Authority is not the problem. Injustice is the problem. And you don't get rid of injustice by removing authority. That's, that's not how you get rid of injustice. You just have more injustice spread around. You know, people without a title committing acts of injustice. You don't get rid of injustice by removing authority. And today, organizations like Black Lives Matter are calling for things like defunding the police, or, and, and also in their, their, their website, which has a, a, a doctrinal statement, it has a what we believe page. They talk about uh, freeing ourselves from the, the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. You know, basically, um, you know, those that are that believe that that, that gender is, is fixed by God. Disrupting the, the Western prescribed nuclear family structure, getting rid of the, the idea of, of family. That, it, it's, it's, it's really this move to get rid of authority, God-ordained authority in the family, in the government, even in the conscience before the Lord. You don't get rid of injustice by removing authority. But injustice, injustice seeks to, uh, to remove that kind of authority. It denies the word of God as the one who's got the authority over all of us. Injustice also ignores the restraint of God in the conscience. As I mentioned to you earlier, even though we're, we're fallen creatures, we instinctively know that certain things are right or wrong. You know, even if you never picked up a Bible a, a day in your life, you have a sense that, that people should be treated the way that I want to be treated. Now, I've spoken with unbelievers who tell me that they, they try to live by the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's really a summary of the, the commands of Scripture regarding the way that we're to treat one another, our fellow man, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. And everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Injustice is, is a violation of that principle of, of treating one another in the way that we want to be treated. When Israel was uh, commanded to treat people justly, it often came with the painful reminder of how would you like to be treated? Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 17, it says, You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in a pledge, but you shall remember. Remember what? Remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. How, how should you treat people that are being oppressed? Well, well, how would you like to be treated when you're oppressed? You should treat people the same way that you want to be treated. It's common sense. And uh, four petitions were actually submitted to the provincial legislator in Massachusetts in 1773 to 1777 based on this principle of, of justice, treating people the way that you want to be treated. Some of the African slaves were made aware that the American colonies desired to be free from England, and the colonies referred to their condition as a kind of slavery to the crown. And in response, one slave wrote, the efforts made by the legislative or legislator of uh, this province in their last sessions to free themselves from slavery gave us who are in that deplorable state a high degree of satisfaction. We expect great things from men who have made such a noble stand against the designs of their fellow men to enslave them. Another said, 
as the people of this province seem to be actuated by the principles of equity and justice, we cannot but expect your house will again take our deplorable case into serious consideration and give us that ample relief, which as men we have a natural right to. Basically, they were appealing to the conscience, saying that you should treat others the way that you want to be treated. Even your own conscience should know that. Injustice ignores the conscience, ignores the restraint of God in the conscience. And injustice also forgets the judgment of God. It's been said that the, the wheels of justice turn slowly, but grind exceedingly fine. And ultimately, we know that, that God will be the one to bring justice. Romans chapter 12 and verse 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God is sovereign. We don't have to seek vengeance on our own. God is sovereign. God will repay. And while it's appropriate to seek righteousness and justice in in government, the only time the government will be free from all corruption is when Christ returns and ends all forms of human government and assumes the throne himself. Psalm 2, verse 6, But as for me, I installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And Daniel chapter 2 describes the scene in a vision where there's a, a great idol made of the different materials that represent the empires of the world. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 35, it says, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away. So listen to this. So that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the kingdom of Christ. Not a trace of any other kingdom will be found when Christ takes over. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Revelation 11, verse 15, says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's the kingdom that we're looking forward to. That's the the kingdom that will have no corruption. That's the kingdom that will be run in righteousness and justice. And if you have the opportunity to talk to anybody about these issues, please don't miss the opportunity that you have to share the gospel. If if, if someone desires justice, you can ask them, do you know why we desire justice? It's part of the image of God and man. We've been designed to desire justice. If somebody says, says that life matters, you can tell them why life matters. Matters because we've been created in the image of God. We belong to God. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 21, if you remember that uh, scene where uh, uh, Jesus was uh, being uh, tested by the, the leaders of his day, you know, and they, they wanted to put him in, back him into a corner, you know, where he would uh, go against the popular opinion regarding paying taxes to Caesar. And Jesus said, you know, hand, hand me one of these coins. Hand me one of the coins. He says, whose, whose inscription is on this? Matthew 22, verse 21, they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. You've been created in the image of God, and guess who you belong to? You belong to God. Yeah, we can say that life matters. Do you know why your life matters? Because you've been made in the image of God. And do you know who you should give your life to because your life matters? You should give your life to the one whose image you've been made in. Give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. Give to God the things that belong to God. You 
are made in the image of God. You belong to God. Your life matters, and you should give yourself to God. And if somebody expresses sorrow over the way that things are in this world, you can remind them that God will send his son, and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. And have you submitted yourself to his reign? The king will return and make all things right. But when he comes, he comes to bring justice. And his justice will be impartial for all. And that includes you if you do not know Jesus Christ. If you do not know Jesus Christ. And I know this may come across as insensitive to to some, but I I pray that you'll understand the point that I'm trying to make. Because uh, when we watch that video with uh, Mr. George Floyd, and we see the officer with his, his knee on the neck and the bystanders that are pleading for his life. Uh, the question that I, I, I've, I've often wondered is, who, who do people most identify with? Some people would say that they identify with, with Mr. George Floyd, you know, that I feel like I'm being oppressed, I feel like I'm a victim. Other people would say that I identify with the, the bystanders. I'm the one that's, that's crying for justice, pleading for his life. That's the person I most identify with. But the person that we should also identify with is the officer that had his knee on the neck of George Floyd. Because I'm not just a victim, and I'm not just a champion for justice. I'm also the perpetrator of the crime, and I have murder in my heart if I'm honest before God. I'm the one that's guilty. And once we understand that we're guilty, now we can look for a solution. Where's the help come from? If I know that I'm guilty of sin, who do I go to for forgiveness? I go to Jesus Christ. It's, it's, It's a way to bring the conversation back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with that biblical framework in place, let's fill it in with James chapter 2. And uh, some of you thought that I was never going to get here, and we'll we'll try to work through this quickly. But James chapter 2 is where we'll we'll be and uh, uh, give our attention to for a couple minutes here. James chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and uh, all the way down to verse 13 is where we'll be looking. Uh, The book of of James has been called the the wisdom literature of the New Testament, uh, because James, like Proverbs, is primarily concerned with the practical aspects of the faith, you know, where the rubber meets the road. You know, James confronts us with the question, does your faith work? What difference does it make that you believe? You know, we could say hashtag faith matters. Faith matters. Your faith should matter. And here James speaks to these scattered believers to let them know that they they need to know some things. And uh, and this is what I want to make sure that we know as we think about this kind of conversation that we're we're having today. We need to know that, that our faith should make a difference in how we respond in the way that we act as believers. In James chapter 1, verse 26, it lets us know that true religion is not matched, does not match an unbridled tongue. James 1, 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, or I even say does not bridle his, his fingers on the keyboard, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. You need to be a person of true religion, true faith. James chapter 2, verse 14 says that a true faith doesn't match with a life without works. James chapter 2, verse 14, what use is it, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Chapter 3, verse 13 lets us know that, that true faith does not match a life without good behavior and gentleness. 
James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. And then in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, James lets us know that true faith does not mix with partiality. And in the, the passage before us, James deals with the ugly sin of partiality. That's the focus of these 13 verses. In verse 1, he begins with this command, Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. In verse 4, he says, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Then again, in verse 9, it says, If you show partiality, you are committing sin. Uh, the word that's used for partiality is a, a word, prosopolepsiae. Uh, prosopolepsiae. It literally means to receive the face. It speaks of, of a judgment based solely on external appearances. And this is what God warned the judges of Israel against repeatedly, that we don't make judgments based on externals. We're not partial. Deuteronomy 16, verse 19, you shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. Partiality is inconsistent with the faith that we hold. Receiving people based on external appearances is inconsistent with the faith that we hold. And in verse 4, he has to ask the question, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? You know, basically, he has to convince them that, that this problem is a problem that you have as well. So don't tune this out. This is like a spiritual checkup, whether you think you need it or not. And uh, we're going to diagnose this disease of partiality. We're going to look at five symptoms today, and uh, I'll give them to you as we move through this, this passage. Uh, James chapter uh, 2, starting in verse, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? The verbs that are used here are in what's known as the subjunctive mood, uh, which means that the illustration is not necessarily a true incident, but is close enough to what was actually happening uh, to make the, the point crystal clear. And he pictures a day that the church is gathered together, and on this particular day they receive two visitors. And the first to appear, or at least the first one to be, be recognized, is a man who's of great importance. Literally, the, the phrase, with a gold ring, is a gold-fingered man. You know, so, so likely he had multiple rings on. I mean, this was this is bling before bling was invented. The word used for, for fine, for fine clothes, is uh, the word lampros. And you can kind of hear our English word lamp in there. It's, it's a word for, for dazzling, brilliant, magnificent. You know, his, his, his jewelry and his clothes distinguished him as a man of status. But he wasn't the only visitor to come in that day. There was another fellow who happened to come in. And as you look at him, he's shabby, dirty, has to be poor. Most likely he's a beggar, comes into the church, but today he's not looking for a handout. He's actually looking to join the service. And before we look at the reaction of this congregation to these visitors, what is your reaction as you think about that scenario? What are, what are you going to do? Two people come into your congregation, one's well-dressed, definitely a person of status, the other comes in, dirty, looking like he's a beggar, how are you going to treat those guests as they come in? Scripture lets us know that if you pay special attention 
to the person dressed in fine clothes that you're committing an act of injustice. James chapter 2, verse 4, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? MacArthur notes that in this illustration, that whoever is bringing these people in to the congregation and seating them, you know, you you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit down by my footstool, you know, but you say to the to the, the person who's who's well dressed, you know, hey, you come sit here in a good place. He says that uh, that in this illustration, whoever's showing these people in is even refusing to give up his own seat to the poor man. Because he doesn't say, hey, have my seat. He says, no, you can sit here by my footstool. Doesn't even give up his footstool for the guy. And I'm sure it could be rationalized. I mean, you know, hey, poor people are used to sitting on the floor, aren't they, anyway? You know, I'm probably kinder to him than he is, than, than the kindness that he gets for most people. And you might be right, but you're no less guilty of injustice. And maybe as you read this passage, you believe yourself to be out of reach because, you know, hey, I'd never ask anybody to sit on the floor. But don't forget that the subject here is favoritism or partiality, discrimination. And James is only giving us one example of it. And there are more ways to discriminate than we like to to think that there are. For example, would you be more or less likely to speak to someone based on their level of education, national origin, physical abilities, natural talents, physical appearance, style of hair or style of clothing, their age, their skin color, or their ability to communicate in the English language? Do you greet people without reservation? Or have you already determined who you want to get to know based on receiving the face, discrimination? Do you discriminate amongst yourselves? We need to examine ourselves. The second symptom is found in verses 5 and 6. And it's this, do you dishonor those whom God has chosen? Do you dishonor those whom God has chosen? Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And then beginning of verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Again, this, this question doesn't anticipate an argument because James bases his argument on what these believers already know to be true. They, they knew that God chose the poor because that's what most of them were. He speaks of the rich as if they're in a different category. Later on in, in the verse, he says, is it not the rich who oppress you? In other words, you know, most of you aren't the rich. Isn't it the rich who oppress you? Saying that you're outside of that category? So God has chosen them, those who weren't necessarily rich. But now they want to discriminate against somebody who has less than they do? First Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. As one commentator says, Bring your false estimates into the light of the gospel. We don't receive people based on the face. What's on the surface? On the surface, the the poor person is to be pitied, maybe to be avoided. They live in want. They're trampled on by men. They die without recognition. But if we look at them through the lenses of Scripture, we would understand that these are the same who are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. 
and rich in faith could be understood in more than, than one way. One is that the, the poor have a greater measure of faith. That's one way that it's been understood. That, and it could be argued that the poor have a greater need for faith because they have to trust in the Lord more. But most likely what this means is that it's because of their faith that they're rich. They've been placed in Christ. They've been made rich in faith. The poor are abounding in riches because the Lord gives riches, abounding riches to all who call upon Him. They've been predestined, redeemed, forgiven. They've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and the list goes on. You know, forget about the golden rings. These are the people who will walk on golden streets, the poor, who believe in Christ. So what he's saying is that you're not connecting the dots. You're you're looking at people based on external appearances, but you're missing what's true about that person. Now at the end of verse 5, it says that they love God. It said God chose the poor of this world. Didn't he choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of which he promised to those who love him? Those who love him? So they love God, but you have a hard time loving them? And I want to get a little personal here because this, this is serious. Have we ever said something about a particular person or group of people that you would have, you would have been embarrassed to get back to them? What do you say when you get into your, your own groups about other people? Do you have a hard time loving people who love the Lord? What do you say about people who are uneducated? People who have less than you do? Are you willing to apply your theology where it counts? Are you willing to apply your theology that, hey, we're all one race? But what if your your son or your daughter was interested in somebody from a, a different ethnic group? Would you still say, hey, we're all just one in the Lord, or would that would that be a problem? Because there's there's more going on in our hearts than we care to admit. Have we bought into the world's vocabulary, definitions? categories. Symptom number three. Do you direct attention to those who disgrace and dishonor God? Look at verse six. But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? The rich were particularly known for their exploitation of the poor. If you flip over to to chapter five in the the book of of James, over in chapter five in uh, Verse 4 gives an example of uh, those who are, are rich. Actually, in verse 1, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. And then in uh, verse 4, it talks about a particular sin, that uh, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. They were withholding money from those that it was due. And this is something that God expressly forbid. Leviticus 19, verse 13, You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him, The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning, but this is what the rich were doing, withholding pay that belonged to people, taking advantage of people. They'd lend money to the the poor sometimes at an extremely high usury rate. And this is the same class of people that these people that James is writing to is uh, looking up to. And like, how ironic is that? Looking up to a group of people that, that are your oppressors trying to give special seating to those who are actually your oppressors. But the second blow that James gives is, is much worse, again, in verse 7, back in chapter 2. He says, Do they, they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? 
fair name is, uh, the, the word for fair is a Greek word kalos. It means beautiful, excellent, precious. It's a reference to the name of Jesus Christ. It's by this name that we've been called as Christians. To be called by a, a name was a, a Hebrew way of saying that you belong to that person. Frequently used for those that belong to God. You know, one that we're probably all familiar with in uh, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, If my people who are called by my name, to be called by somebody's name was uh, a way to say that you actually belong to them. And he says, you've been, been called by the name of the one who is the fair one, the fair name by which you've been called. You belong to Christ. You've been called by the name of Jesus. But this is the one that those that you're looking to kind of elevate are actually mocking, blaspheming the fair name. Are these your heroes? Are these your role models? The ones who blaspheme the name of, of Christ? Are these the people that you put up on a pedestal and, and give honor to? Just because they have money or status or maybe influence? You know, maybe they're, they're carrying the, the day, they've got the power. Is that who you give honor to? Do you discriminate? Do you dishonor those that God has chosen? Do you direct attention to those who dishonor God? Number four, do you disobey the royal law? Fourth symptom of the disease. Look at verse 8 through 11 over here. It says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and it stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. For if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So so what is what is the saying? James is really leaving no stone unturned in this kind of penetrating investigation of our hearts. And the goal is to help his readers to see that that sin is just as much, the sin of partiality, is just as much of a sin as any other sin. He wants to, to make sure that, that we understand that partiality is not a trivial matter. It's a serious offense against the Holy God. The, the law that he refers to is the, the royal law in chapter 2 and verse 8. Chapter 125, he calls it the perfect law. In chapter 2, verse 12, he calls it the law of liberty. And it's called the, the royal law here because it's the, the law of the king who is Jesus Christ. And it's the perfect law because it's complete. And it's the law of liberty because it, it sets us free from the Mosaic law, the laws of Moses. And what is this royal, perfect, liberating law? It's the law of love, which our Lord refers to on at least three different occasions. Matthew 19, Mark 12, Luke chapter 10. What's, what's the... The command that the Lord said was greater than all other commands. Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus answered, The foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Loving God and loving neighbor are the greatest commandments. So James' logic here is, what he's saying is that if you're guilty of partiality, it's not some kind of small, isolated sin. 
not loving your neighbor is actually a violation of the greatest command towards your neighbor. It's the greatest command that's given by Jesus Christ. It's number one, love God. Number two, love your neighbor. If you're not loving your neighbor, you're violating the greatest command that's been given by the king. And in verse 10, he argues for the the unity of the law. It's all one piece. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. In Romans 13, verse 9, Galatians 5, 14, it lets us know that the entirety of the law that governs our actions towards one another can be summarized by the command to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you're guilty of racism, classism, prejudice, discrimination, bias, bigotry, or we could use the biblical terms of partiality, hatred, you're guilty of violating the entire law. I like the illustration of a of a, of a broken window. You know, whether you chip the edge or you smash right through the middle of it, the window's still broken and still needs to be replaced. If you've broken the law, any part of it, you've broken the entire law. Because he who said, do not commit adultery, verse 11, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. You know, so, so like, picture this for a minute. Somebody has been convicted of murder. He actually admits that, yes, I've committed murder. And then the judge says, you know, do you have anything to say for yourself? He says, well, yeah, I, I killed the guy, but I am faithful to my wife. I mean, my wife knows that, you know, if I tell her something, I mean it. You know, I, I'm, I'm committed to the vows that I made to my wife. Are you going to say that he's not guilty now? It doesn't make any sense. You're still a lawbreaker. So somebody who says, well, I, you know, I, I might be partial. I might be discriminatory, but, you know, look at all these other laws that I've kept. You're still a lawbreaker. And we need to see partiality for the ugly, heinous sin that it is. And finally, we come to the last and final symptom, really the most sobering. Do you deny mercy to others and expect to receive mercy from God? Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How would you like your judgment? I'm I'm not sure if we think about this often, if it often crosses our minds, that one day we'll stand before the Lord in judgment and have to give an answer for everything that we've done, that we've said, how we've treated people. You know, we sing the song, at least one of the songs I used to sing back in the day, you know, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And it will be a day of rejoicing, but it's also going to be a solemn time. Romans 14, verse 10 says, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. There's like this kind of sobriety to standing before the judgment seat of God. You know, I understand that there's no no fear of God's eternal wrath, but, but Paul grasps something about his judgment that we don't. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. So we're to speak in light of this judgment, we're to act in light of this judgment, and what James says here is, you know, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. We're always being monitored. You know, sometimes uh, 
you know, you get a phone call, a business phone call, or you call somebody to take care of something, and they say, you know, hey, uh, we just want to let you know that this conversation uh, may be monitored for quality assurance or something like that, right? And I wonder sometimes, you know, how would this person speak to me differently if they didn't know that somebody was on the other end of the line? If they, they didn't know that they were being monitored. But the truth is, is that we are always being monitored. There's always somebody on the other end of the line because the Lord is always watching. So do you act and do you speak like somebody who knows that the Lord is listening? As somebody who knows that they're going to be judged by the perfect law of liberty, do you act like that? Verse 12, James is speaking to his audience in the the second person here, and this is significant. Because he, he, he makes the switch here. In verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. He's speaking to them. You, you speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. But then in verse 13, he says something different. For judgment will be merciless to the one. So here he's not speaking to them. You know, you speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one. He's speaking about somebody else. He's no longer speaking to you. He's speaking to that one. And who is that one? It's the one who shows no mercy. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. And who is that? It has to be an unbeliever. It's unbelievers who show no mercy. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says to his disciples, Matthew 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He's he's speaking about the characteristics of a believer. Believers are those who are merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Romans chapter 9, verse 23, describes believers as vessels of his mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Believers are those that God gives mercy to. So who is the one who has shown no mercy? It's the unbeliever. And James says that judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy, to the unbeliever. One commentator said, such refusal to practice mercy will be like a boomerang on the day of judgment. With the the force that you throw out, injustice, oppression, will be the same force that it returns back to you on the day of judgment. And that's what we're reminded of in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. God's going to take care of it. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we don't have to worry about making sure that everybody receives the kind of judgment that we think that they deserve, because God will take care of that person who is merciless. God will repay. God's judgment will be merciless for the one who has shown no mercy. So what should our response be? What should our response be? just want to close with Micah 6, 8. And I love this. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We know that judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. So what is our job? What's our response? Our response should be to be the ones who show mercy. Do justly. When you have the opportunity to do what's right, do what's right. Don't be a person of partiality. Don't receive people based on the the face alone, the external appearances alone. Individually fight for against discrimination and prejudice within your own heart. 
Teach your children that, that all men are created equal, with equal dignity before God. Red and yellow, black and white, right? Make sure your church is known for accepting all people of all backgrounds. And where you can, civilly, peacefully, submissively work towards the improvement of the government. But remember that your battle is not against flesh and blood, and the primary mission is gospel change and not social change. The Christian mission is the Great Commission. It's the gospel. We're called to do justly. We're also called to love mercy. Love mercy. Every person who is taken from this world has an eternal soul. Mr. George Floyd has an eternal soul. But guess who else has an eternal soul? Protesters, the bystanders, the police officers, people that you disagree with on this issue, they have an eternal soul. And my question is, is do you desire mercy for them? Do you pray for them? Before your your next post or your next tweet or your next blog, will you commit yourself to prayer? Matthew 5, 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God gives us an example of loving his enemies, and he calls on us to do the same. Love, mercy. And do you walk humbly with your God? In Titus chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Do you, do you look at people that you disagree with, those that are unmerciful, unbelieving, enslaved, foolish, disobedient, do you look at those people and say, you know what, if it wasn't for the grace of God, that would be me. There go I, but for the grace of God, there go I. The last statement in James chapter 2 and verse 13 says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. And aren't we thankful for that? Because it was God's mercy that triumphed over the judgment that we deserved for our sins. If it wasn't for the grace of God, that would be us. But as 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11 says, Such were some of you. Such were some of you. There's some of us who've been guilty of some of these same sins, the hatred and murderous intents in our hearts towards other people. We've been guilty of some of these same sins, some of these same sins of discrimination. But what has God demonstrated to us? He's granted us mercy because of Jesus Christ. In his mercy, he saved us. Sent his son, Jesus Christ, who perfectly lived before him righteously and justly, And then upon Jesus Christ, the judgment for all of our sins fell upon him so that if we would turn to him, trust in him, give our lives to him, believe in Jesus Christ, that we would be saved. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And I pray that 
mercy will triumph over judgment even in our speech and the way that we deal with one another and that we appoint people to the only solution that they can have, which is found in Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had in your word. Uh, we pray that your word would instruct us, uh, that your word would correct us where we need to be corrected, and, uh, and that you would motivate us uh, to live lives of obedience, lives of mercy uh, towards others for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.